Hi, and welcome to Studying the Steps, where we take a deeper dive into the 12 steps. In each episode, an alcoholic woman in recovery helps us study individual steps as outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Through her experience and knowledge of working the program, she gives insight on how to apply and practice the spiritual principles being studied. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org. Please note, the curriculum we teach through our programs at Maggie's is from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. However, we are not an Alcoholics Anonymous group, and we are not associated with AA. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the host of this here podcast, Recover Out Loud. And today on Recover Out Loud, we are going to be doing our series, Studying the Steps. And I am super stoked for today's guest. She is the one behind the scenes making all of this sound wonderful. My go-to when I don't know what I'm doing. My FaceTime live troubleshooter. Um, <laughs> and one of our fantastic Next Step coordinators, Kelsey. And so Kelsey is going to be uh, taking us through step four. And we're just going to go with it and roll with the punches and see what happens. Go ahead. All right. Hi, Kelsey. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where to start. So, and I also like get super weird introducing myself because it's like, eh, alcoholics? Anyway, um, I'm really, really grateful to be able to do this. I love step four and that was not always the case (laughs) I do want to pull a lot from the book because the directions are really clear-cut in the book and I can get in a lot of trouble when I try to self-will the steps the cool thing about step four is that steps one two and three precede it (laughs) and what I've learned and what I've been taught over the years and and I think developed a deeper like level of acceptance around as well is that when I have an issue with any of the other steps, it's a step one issue. Like I'm not convinced that I'm powerless or I've forgotten that my life depends on it. And then following that usually is that I've developed some form of agnosticism in a certain area. And there's a part that I'm not willing to turn my life over right like I'm not allowing God into a certain area so just you know the first time I got sober I came in through a court-ordered treatment center that was not the first time I'd been introduced to the steps or the book but it was the first time that I had been exposed to it without being intoxicated (laughs) so I got introduced to the steps in treatment and I remember there was this big bad stigma around step four um it was like everybody was like oh have you started your fourth step yet and I this was before I really knew that like a sponsor was required so I'm like oh no I'm not doing that whatever so I got out of treatment I had to get a sponsor per the uh judge and court and probation and all that so I got a sponsor she sat me down and you know, like talk to me about steps one, two, and three. She asked me if I had any questions and I said no, when in fact I had all the questions and did not understand anything really that she had just said. Because I, you know, at that point I thought that my life was still manageable, which is funny because it absolutely was not. (laughs) You know, and I had a huge, huge issue with the God thing. And so I was just like, nope. And she's like, okay, go, you know, start this resentment list or whatever. And I went home and wrote down like some of the obvious ones. And I I did like a very half measures four step. And I was not honest about, you know, it was very superficial and very much my version of 
giving her something that looks like I tried, right? Because what I realized in hindsight is that I didn't really want her to be my sponsor. I just wanted her to like me. And so I ended up relapsing back in treatment. And, you know, for whatever reason, this time I had that gift of desperation or as the book calls it like I had been beaten into a state of reasonableness by my experience and so I was willing to try the one thing that I had never really honestly tried and that was working these steps to the best of my ability as honestly as possible to see what happened because I was pretty much out of op- out of options I got out of that treatment center and got my sponsor you know and and she basically sat down with me and read this book line by line and when I had a question I asked it when I didn't understand something I said that and she explained and she shared her experience with me and one I firmly believe that like my step one was solidified in my relapse and then when it came to steps two and three I had a lot of questions I had a lot of prejudice a lot of agnosticism and so we worked through that and I made that decision like it says on page 47 I believe do I now believe or am I even willing to believe so I said yeah you know I kind of have to and you know and I worked through I I was able to see where I'd been closed-minded around God and where my perspective had been really skewed we get into you know that step three decision and I was like, well, I don't know how to, I don't know how to turn my life, my will and my life over the care of this God thing that I'm just barely starting to believe in. And so it was made really simply to me that I'm making a commitment to work the rest of the steps. And I'm making a commitment to be honest and be thorough and to just do the best that I can, right? You know, we said the third step prayer and then I immediately was tasked with making my resentment list and what I'll say too is like after doing an honest and thorough four step for the first time working the rest of the steps having a spiritual experience like step four is not big and bad right (laughs) you know step four is actually honestly writing inventory is probably one of my favorite tools today Uh, it's really really beneficial I always get something out of it it allows me to see in black and white even if I know what something is going to look like in my head when I put it down pen to paper I get clarity and when I process it or share it with my sponsor I get another perspective I believe that it's a really really awesome way that God can communicate with me even when I'm blocked or when my perspective is very you know like through a very selfish lens on page 63 After the third step prayer, it says, Next, we launched on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. And so I always, until, (laughs) this is kind of funny, but until probably like two years ago, I always just assumed that the course of vigorous action was step four. But in closer examination, it says, Next, we launched out a out on a course of vigorous action the first of which so that was like an aha moment realizing that actually the course of vigorous action is like doing the rest of the steps and living in these principles for the rest of your life if you want to stay recovered so I always like to touch on that and then it says though our decision was a vital and crucial step it could have little permanent effect unless at once by unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. And, you know, I think I've seen a lot of alcoholics come in and do that, you know, one, two, three, back out the door kind of thing. And I don't even know if I can really say it's one, two, three. Maybe it's like one thought about two, forgot one. (laughs) I don't know. I like that. Um, And so I love that they added that in there that like, yeah, okay, you can decide to turn your will and your life over. But it's kind of like saying I'm sorry and not changing your behavior. And this novel concept that our liquor is but a symptom. (laughs) And it's like no wonder I never got any relief the first time because if you take away the alcohol, 
then you still have me. And so if I'm the problem everywhere I go, there I am. Nothing's changed. So I'm still going to run around like a tornado in everybody's lives and just be poor pitiful me wondering why nothing's getting better because I haven't done any work yet. And so when it starts talking about step four, it equates it to like a business taking inventory, which is vital for a business to stay in business. You know, they have to take inventory to figure out like what's useful, what's not useful, what's expired, maybe like bestsellers and things that they can get rid of if they're not profiting or benefiting in some way from those products. And so the way I like to see it is every week or so whenever I go grocery shopping I always try to go into my kitchen and pantry before and throw away everything that's expired right like I don't need moldy bread because that's not going to serve me I should do that (laughs) and so I don't need expired orange juice because it's not going to like benefit my body in any way it's probably going to be kind of nasty right And so I do that and then I go to the grocery store and I get what I need that's going to, you know, sustain me. And I try to be that objective with writing inventory, but the problem is there's feelings involved. And so it can be really hard, but they tell us, you know, that it's it's a fact-finding and a fact-facing process. Nowhere in here does it say anything about like, oh, let's talk about your feelings and... Mm -hmm. You know, no, like this is not about feelings. Um, But what I will tell you is that that is something that I have learned in the last few years and not a concept that I had embraced the first time I wrote a four-step. But I really, really like it now. And so it says, you know, that we, we take stock honestly of our lives. We search out the flaws in our makeup, which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us. We considered its common manifestations. And so these are like the three basic manifestations of my selfishness, my self-will. And that's where we get our three inventories from, resentment inventory, fear inventory, and the sex inventory. And so I always kind of the way I look at it is like resentment is the way that I show up with pretty much anyone else in the world when I don't get my way Mm. fear is how I show up when like with God when I'm not getting my way and then the sex inventory is how I'm showing up in like those intimate kind of inner circle relationships when I don't get my way (laughs) right so it tells us that resentment is the number one offender and I really really love that because when I got sober this time I the only emotion that I knew how to identify was anger Uh, And it's hard to imagine because I'm such a sweetheart now. I know. (laughs) Very true, though. (laughs) You know, but I just, I mean, I walked around the world just feeling like everyone owed me something and was so angry that I didn't get it and nobody else saw it. And really all of that kind kind of boiled from the fact that I just felt like, you know, you hear all the time, like everybody else got the guide to life and I didn't kind of thing. And so I just felt like nothing ever went my way. And it was kind of like, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. So I would always try to prepare myself for that. And still, I would just be angry all the time. And that was the only emotion I could identify. I didn't know anything about fear. I didn't know anything about like how to process or identify any kind of emotions. And so the inventory allowed me to take a deeper look at that and really see that like underneath anger, it's usually fear, you know, and it's usually fear that like I'm not in control or I'm not going to get what I want or somebody's going to hurt me or whatever that looks like. But anyway, so we get our first inventory, the resentment inventory, and you know, the book lays it out pretty black and white. What I also like to say is that the only wrong way to do a four-step is to not do it, right? Or to leave something off of it, which you know that you're omitting. And so, you know, there's basically the bit of guidance here would be do whatever your sponsor tells you to do because it worked for her. And so people do it different ways. Uh, I'm really like grateful for the way that I was taught how to do it because it worked for my sponsor and it worked for me. And I've seen it work for the women that I sponsor. But if it looks different, that's fine. There's no one in, no one else in the world that can write your four-step for you. Not even your sponsor. Not your best friend. Nobody. 
And so it's going to look different. And if it's a different format, like whatever. So anyway, (laughs) another line that I love too in here is when it's talking about resentment destroys more alcoholics than anything else. And from it stem all sorts of spiritual disease. For we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So, you know, at the top of the page is telling me my liquor is just a symptom. My liquor is a symptom to the spiritual problem, and I just so happen to have that physical allergy and the mental obsession. So in order to overcome this spiritual problem, I need this spiritual solution. And the first step of that is getting unblocked from God. And I didn't understand that. I was still very much like playing the victim role. I mean, I was acting out in all kinds of defects, but I wanted to do this work. I was just terrified of it. (laughs) And I wanted to, like, I believed my sponsor, but I also was still like, I'm a knucklehead. It took me a minute. Um, You know, I see these women coming in, having a spiritual experience in two, three weeks, and it took me months. You know, it took me months because I fought it. And I, you know, eventually it got to the point where I was like, okay, I'll say it got to a, it got, it came to a head where I was in enough spiritual pain to keep moving forward with the work. So anyway, you know, I start on this four step, the first, we've got the four columns, you know, the first is the who, and that could be people, institutions, or principles. I had definitely had institutions on my resentment list with, you know, like Dallas County, uh, police department (laughs) a few other police departments um probation you know all that stuff I didn't have any principles on there um I didn't really understand what that was but I've heard that it could be like you know the principle of having to be honest you know or the principle of um I don't know I can't think of another one I think Marlena mentioned one time the principle of quick to see where religious people are right oh yeah that's a good one yeah I I didn't really get that either so kind of like the principle of like open-mindedness you know or it could even be the principle of like having to pay somebody back you know yeah yeah which I kind of got resentful about when I got to my amends but anyway (laughs) so you know we've got that first column just the who that second column is the why and I was told to keep this like what I wanted to do was write out a novel about how this person had wronged me what I was told to do was to keep it simple and kind of like bullet points and because this is an opportunity that like I can lather this thing in feelings and hide all of the truth or try to hide it or maybe never get to it or I can keep it really simple to the blank you know factual and probably have a much better experience with it then we get to that third column which I really like the third column because that's what enabled me to identify those emotions that were underneath my anger right I've got you know it says we set opposite each name our injuries so my injuries was how like what how my whatever you know self-esteem security ambition personal relations sex relations and my pocketbook how those were hurt threatened or interfered with and so the way I was told to do it like my sponsor gave me um, kind of some guidance for each one so like how is my self-esteem hurt threatened or interfered with uh, by this resentment well it made me feel small or it made me feel weak I felt like I felt like I had no worth. That was a big one. Like I felt unworthy. That was huge for me. And so what I started to see or what I saw in my fifth step, because I didn't really see a whole lot of this the first time I was writing it, but I can usually see it pretty quickly now, is that usually underneath that resentment, I'm not getting what I want and it's making me feel less than with my ambition or my security like how is this interfering with what I want or what I think I need personal relationships it's always interfering with how I'm showing up with other people same with my sex relations and then pocketbook was one of those things that I was usually the one who was interfering with other people's pocketbooks so (laughs) there's that anyway and so we get that third column and I'm really able to see that underlying 
like those underlying emotions to what's really going on. Then, I, and I was instructed like to go through, I kind of just did it column by column. So I had all of my grudge list written out and then I went through and did all of my causes, right? And then I did all of my third columns and then met with my sponsor again and she laid out that fourth column. Because there's this really important shift in perspective that comes between columns three and columns four. At the bottom of 65... Can I ask you a question? First? Yeah. Did you do extended third or? I did. Yeah. Can you say what that means? Extended third and I guess fourth column two is more so saying like, you know, some people just say, yes, my self-esteem was affected or yes, my security, you know, you, you kind of just go through and write what was affected or what was injured with the extended. It's like, this is how my self-esteem was was affected and so kind of writing out like I would put like se for self-esteem and then write um, I am unworthy comma I am unlovable comma I am you know small or whatever weak and then going through that for each of those I think it's seven things and really taking a deep look at how I'm being affected by these things instead of just saying well, yeah, I think my self-esteem was affected, or I think this interfered with my ambitions, like really looking at it, which was super beneficial for me. Because again, like I was just so blocked, (laughs) you know, and I'm not saying that I'm any worse than anybody or any better than anybody, but I just could not, I couldn't see it. Then we get to, actually, it's going to be on page 66, When it says, I love this line too, it says, to conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Uh, Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. And I love that because that was me. That was my experience. Like people would wrong me and I'd be like, you're wrong. And then it would be this whole big thing. And then, you know, retaliation and all kinds of crazy chaos. Then it outlines for us that the futility and unhappiness of life, which includes a deep resentment. Uh, I love that word futility. I what look, does it mean? I'm going to tell you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why I love okay. it. Okay. It means essentially, you know, and this is not like the dictionary version of it, but kind of like my summarized version but it means like without purpose going nowhere absolutely meaningless and I love that word because it accurately describes everything about my life before I got sober Uh, like I was basically taking up space and I felt like I was taking up space and so I love that the book uses such like just such an on-point word for this You know, it tells us that with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit, the insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again, and with us to drink it's to die. So this is telling me, like, point blank, if I don't overcome these resentments, like if I sit on them and keep them inside and don't do the work around them, like my mental obsession will drive me to drink. And I know for me, my step one truth is not like, oh, maybe I can drink for a few years and then get sober again. Like, no, I'm 100% convinced that if I go back out, I'm not going to make it back into these rooms at all. It says if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. And then a little further down when we get to this kind of perspective change, it says we turn back to the list for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see the world and its people really dominated us. And that was huge. Like that was such an aha moment for me to realize how much power I was giving these things and these people, you know, cause I had always fancied myself like pretty resourceful and pretty independent and all of those things. And then to see that these resentments are literally killing me so it says in that state the wrongdoing of others fancied or real had power to actually kill how could we escape we saw that these resentments must be mastered but how we could not wish them away any more than alcohol so meaning that I can't self-will away these resentments any more than I can self-will my way to getting sober 
So I've got to do the work around them. And the first part of it says that we realized the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Uh, though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And when a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. That was really important for me, especially with my like really, really big resentment. Like my biggest resentment was my mom, hands down. I blamed that poor woman for everything that was wrong with me. And I had pretty much stopped having any kind of contact with her when I was like 17 or 18. And I got sober at 24 and was like hadn't talked to her in that span of years and was still blaming her for everything (laughs) that was wrong with me in my life. And so when I was presented with this idea that maybe my mom was sick too, because I had accepted in step one, yes, I'm an alcoholic, meaning I have a disease. And that was huge. I mean, it was, this program has just absolutely changed my life in so many amazing ways. But coming to that conclusion that I'm not a terrible person, I'm just an alcoholic and I'm sick, that I have a disease that can be treated, that was huge. And so being able to do my best to afford that same grace to someone else when they've wronged me was huge. It took me some time to really work on that aspect of it. But because of that, I'm able to have that tolerance and patience with people when they don't show up the way I want them to. And so we get that perspective shift. We're, in, we're prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. And it says that we avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. And if we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. So then we get our fourth column. And it gives us pretty specific instructions, referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done. We resolutely looked for our own mistakes. So in that fourth column, I also did an extended fourth column um, where it's not just like, yes, I was selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened, but very specifically how. The way it was explained to me is that for selfish, I'm going to write down my selfish thoughts, judgments, and expectations, right? Um, For self-seeking, these are going to be the self-seeking actions that I took with this person. And then dishonest can be broken down into omission, which is not telling the whole truth or just, you know, leaving things out, commission, outright lies, and then delusion, the lies that I tell myself, And then for frightened, that's just the fear that kind of drove the whole thing. And that was really terrifying. (laughs) Uh, I'm a very shame-driven person. And so writing out that fourth column, especially the first time I did a four-step, which just had so many emotions in it, it was hard to see that. you know. And I got to a point with this. I had done my resentment inventory, but it it was pretty surface level. And I put everything on there, but I didn't want to dig really deep in that fourth column. I think I was like halfway through my fear inventory and I was just kind of dug my heels in. You know, my sponsor called me one day and I'm talking like I was on my four step and don't do this at home. I was on my four step for like three and a half months. Just miserable, miserable. And I couldn't figure out why. So my sponsor, my sponsor calls me one day and she's like, so what's going on with this four step? And I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. And she's like, no, like what's really going on? Because you should be done by now. And I just kind of like broke down and exploded. And I was like, I don't understand why I have to do this. Like it's the past. We need to just leave the past in the past. I don't know why I have to write about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to feel about it. And she just very calmly said, because you're blocked from God. And in that moment, it all made sense, you know, and she told me that before and I had accepted that I needed to do this work, but it's kind of like that step one issue, right? In getting caught up with getting back into life, like, you know, getting a job and being in sober and all of that stuff, I had forgotten that my life depended on writing this inventory. And so thankfully, like she redirected me 
and encouraged me and gave me direction to really invite God and to help me to help me have clarity around my fourth column and not look at it in such a subjective way you know like yes I've done pretty terrible things but that does not make me a terrible person she gave me a lot of reassurance in that area which was really helpful If you or someone you know is a woman who wants to sustain and grow in her recovery, check out our three-month non-residential program. Next Step offers community, structure, and accountability to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. Everything we do in Next Step, from the assignments to the accountability group, is to help alcoholic women not only stay sober, but thrive in their recovery. Because we have both in-person and virtual options, we can help women from all over the world. To call into a phone screen to see if you qualify, please call 214-764-0793, extension 500. You know, resentment is always the one that's like talked about, but we also have the fear and the sex. (laughs) And so I think, you know, for me, I got a lot out of the fear inventory as well and so we get to that fear inventory and I kind of set it up the same way with the columns Um, and I love how clear they are about the implications of allowing fear to rule us you know it says that it's an evil and corroding thread Uh, our the fabric of our existence is shot through with it it sets in motion motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve and I love this line, and I say this all the time, like, oh, did I, did I set the ball rolling? Or I always like to say I placed myself in a position to be hurt, <laughs> you know, when I realize that I'm making decisions based on fear, and then in hindsight, I'm like, oh, I did that, you know. And so we get this fear inventory. It says we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them, which is interesting because – you know, when I was doing my first fear inventory, I thought like, one, I didn't, I didn't ever want to admit that I was ever in fear, you know, because like I'm hardcore, right? Like you can't hurt me, whatever. Anyway. And come to find out I was a terrified little girl on the inside, just absolutely paralyzed with fear. And I didn't like my ego wanted to come off as big and bad and you can't hurt me because I was so scared. And I was really, really scared that if anybody knew the real me, then nobody would want to be around me, you know, stemming from those feelings of like not being good enough or being unworthy or never being loved and things like that. And so I did, in fact, get a lot of my fears from my fourth column resentment inventory because, again, fear was one of those things I had a a difficult time identifying in the beginning. So my sponsor was like, okay, write your fears. And I'm like, um, fear of airplanes? I don't know. I don't really have a fear of flying. I think it's really cool. But, you know, like, again, superficial stuff like that. And she's like, no, dig deeper. And if you need help, look at your fourth column resentment. And so what I had on that was things like fear of being alone, fear of abandonment, fear of not being good enough, fear of what people think about me, like a lot deeper. I wrote my fear inventory from there and then added some more. And it says that we asked ourselves why we had them. And I think, you know, the first time I did fear inventory, it was pretty, hmm, like I was just, I just couldn't see that far, you know? <laughs> it's like when the water's really murky and the sun's shining on it, you can see the first like six six inches maybe. And then for me anyway, like the longer I've been sober, the clearer the water gets. And so the light can reach a little deeper. And so, you know, that first fear inventory was pretty surface level, but it was still, I dug as deep as I knew how to dig at that point. And I could definitely see that my self-reliance had failed me. And so the way my fear inventory was set up per how my sponsor had me do it was like, what is the fear? Why do I have it? And today I'm able to dig a lot deeper and see that like, I'm afraid of what people think about me, not just because it's uncomfortable (laughs) or I'm insecure. Those used to be my basic answers, but because 
I feel like I need approval and validation from other people to be okay is actually the underlying reason, you know. And then, so what is the fear? Why do I have this? Where is my reliance was kind of that third question. And by the way, if I'm in fear, I'm never trusting and relying on God. Uh, It's usually relying on myself and or other people. And then she had me add another column in there, which has been really, really helpful to help me. Really, really helpful to help me. What is that? (laughs) Anyway, another column in there, which has really helped me identify when I'm running in fear, which is how I show up. So if I'm, I love to use this example because it's so like both ends of the spectrum, how I show up, I just never know. But the example of being in fear of what people think about me. So how I show up is going to go one of two ways. One, I am either going to try to be your best friend. I want to know what your favorite color is, where you like to eat, where you shop. I'm going to tell you you're cute every time I see you. I would like for you to tell me I'm cute every time you see me. (laughs) Uh, You know, and I'm really just, I'm going to try to be all of the things that I think you want me to be. Or sometimes when I'm in fear of what somebody thinks about me, I avoid them at all costs. I do not want to be around you because I'm so terrified of what you think, right? So, but it was through doing this fear inventory that I figured out that those are the actions that line up with this fear, you know? So it's kind of like when we get to the last two parts of the fear inventory, like what would God have me do and be, this is kind of the opposite. Right. So I'm writing out how I show up in this fear and then how God would want me to show up instead. And so that's been really helpful um, because, again, I'm hard-headed. It takes me a minute. Like, I am a late bloomer. (laughs) I'm definitely of the, you know, the book says sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. I am definitely the sometimes slowly variety. My spiritual awakening has been just these little kind of mini awakenings and then trying to stay awake sometimes. But that's been really, really helpful so I can see. Because a lot of times I'll know, like, inside – something's off but I have to take some time and put a little intention behind figuring out what it is Uh, over time that's gotten a little easier thankfully as long as I you know participate in my recovery daily and do what I need to do god I love that let's see for a second third paragraph on page 68 because again like the first time I was doing this very agnostic it was uncomfortable for me to talk to people about god i just felt really underqualified (laughs) and i would feel awkward when i mean i would feel awkward when somebody would say oh god bless you because i'm like am i supposed to say it back what you know like i don't believe in their god i don't even know what their god is anyway i would just way overcomplicate it And so i love this paragraph that says we never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator and we can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness i used to be one of those people paradoxically it is a way of strength and the verdict of the ages is that faith means courage all men or women of faith have courage they trust their god we never apologize for god instead we let him demonstrate through us what he can do and so then we have the fear prayer we ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be And that's kind of where I get my last column. So the last two columns, first one being like, what would God have me do? So when I recognize that I'm running in this fear, what are some immediate actions that I can take, right? If I'm in fear of what Stephanie thinks about me and I realize it, one, I'm going to ask God to remove it. Two, I'm going to find somebody to help, right? Or maybe I'm going to, um, you know, pray for God to make me the woman that he would have me be, not the woman that I think Stephanie wants me to be, right? Um, Actionable items. And then that last column is, what would God have me be? God would have me be validated by him and him only. You know, God would have me be authentic and honest and, you know, patient and tolerant and loving and give myself and other people grace, you know. Um, So it's cool because I get these actionable items. I get these character assets and ideals to work towards. And I get a pretty definite example of what it looks like when I'm running in fear. Now about sex. That's my favorite line in the book. I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> it's a good line. <laughs> and so it goes into all of these things about sex. I, common, for me anyway, the common misconception was that this sex inventory was going to be a, you know, basically like a transferred of my little black book. I didn't have a little black book. But what I'm trying to say is that I was not... I don't know how to word this. Well, I'm being vulnerable. So I was not a, uh, I was very promiscuous. We'll say that. Very good word. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I was very promiscuous and I had this misconception that this sex inventory was going to be like a little black book list of anyone that I had ever had intimate relationships with. And that was a problem because I don't remember them all. You know, I didn't know. A lot of people actually do think that. Yeah. Like, I just sponsored a girl, and that's what she did with her first one. I was like, how do you even remember everyone? Yeah, no. I definitely did not remember everyone. So I had, like, I was a little scared to go into this sex inventory because I'm like. We just made ourselves sound really good, by the way. <laughs> you know what? If this helps somebody, that's the whole point, uh, right? <laughs> so... I, that's what I thought it was supposed to be, like this list of everyone that I had ever slept with. And I was not an angel in that area of my life. Like, in fact, it's an area of my life that my alcoholism manifested very loudly and obnoxiously. And it was only through, because my relapse was like the, you know, they, they say all the time, like your relapse happens long before you take the first drink. And the first sign of my relapse was my sex conduct. I was already looking and seeking something to change the way I feel. I just hadn't picked up a bottle yet. The first thing I reached for was attention and validation from men Mm -hmm. or women, whoever would give it to me, honestly. And so because of that, when I came in this time, I was like, okay, like I know I need to be fearless and thorough and honest on this sex inventory and figure out like what that's about. Because I knew that my sex conduct had a lot to do with it, but I just didn't know how. I I hadn't put the pieces together yet that my sex conduct was a manifestation of my spiritual malady. And I was reaching for something to change the way I feel. The sex inventory, we have these questions you know, about our conduct. It says we reviewed our conduct over the years past. It says, where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. And so, thankfully, it doesn't have to be a list of everyone I've ever slept with. However, I did have a page for one night. I did have a page for, like, week-long instant relationships that were also instantly over (laughs) you know I forgot what I called them I had all of my major relationships on there and then I also had I also had people on there that I was close with but never slept with Mm -hmm. right and so the way it was explained to me is that the sex inventory and some people call it like a harms inventory but it is focused around relationships the way I understood it was that my sex inventory is meant to be written about anyone that I used my God-given sex powers to manipulate or harm or do anything to to get what I want for selfish reasons. That's exactly how I explained it to my girls too. Yeah. And so because of that, like looking at it that way, like my dad was on my sex inventory, my mom was on my sex inventory, all three of my Hold older on. brothers. Explain that for me. <laughs> how do you how did you use your God-given sex powers for those? Well, uh, with my parents, it's because I'm the youngest of four and I'm the only girl. Right? So it's like I use the fact that like, hey, I'm the baby and I'm the only girl and I'm the little princess, so I need to get what I want. With my brothers, I'm your little sister. You're supposed to protect me or don't tell mom and dad (laughs) or whatever that looks like, you know, but I also, so it's more so how I used femininity or my female like role to try to get what I want. And then also with like, I was also, for whatever reason, really liked to lead people on because I liked that steady flow of attention and validation. 
but it's like I don't want to commit to you because I've already got three other relationships with people who think I'm committed to them so I don't know if I could take on a fourth one right now anyway and so I really liked including those people because what I saw is that I was incredibly selfish dishonest and inconsiderate and I really love that inconsiderate aspect on the on the sex inventory because I don't really look at that a whole lot in resentment like I look at my self-seeking actions and my selfish thoughts and stuff but really taking a look at that inconsiderate part what it made me realize in my first four step this time is that I not once ever stopped to consider anybody else's feelings or once but mine ever and I remember it hitting me like a ton of bricks when I was doing this sex inventory on I don't know one of my exes one of the major relationships and I wrote out those words like I never considered his thoughts or feelings or what he wanted ever and it was just kind of baffling to me you know because I I had no intentions of being that way it just was you know whom have we heard that applies to anyone surrounding the relationship because it's never just you and that person Mm -hmm. and it's definitely never just you you know like oh my drinking only hurts me oh no honey it hurts a lot more than just you Mm So that was really good to see too. Jealousy, suspicion, bitterness. Like I thrived on creating chaos and drama because look at me, you know, pay attention to me, give me what I want. So it was always all of that. And then where were we at fault? You know, this is like specific harm that you can make amends for. What should we have done instead? That one was really pivotal for me too. My sponsor gave me one rule for this question. And that was that I am not allowed to put should not have been in this relationship (laughs) because that's what I wanted to put, you know, like with all of them, what should you have done instead? Never met them, (laughs) right? Like never went to the corner store that day or whatever, you know, should have stayed home instead of going to the bar that night, whatever it looks like. And so what I was instructed to do instead was to put how basically like how God would have wanted me to show up in that whatever kind of relationship it was instead. So what I ended up writing was things like I should have respected them as a human being and considered what they wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, I should have thought about potential consequences that it would have for them. Mm-hmm. I should have given them grace. And that was really It was really heavy to see (laughs) because, again, I had never, like, I didn't wake up one day and just decide I'm going to be a really defective alcoholic, you know? (laughs) Um, And so writing this inventory, especially this time, the first time it was thorough and honest to the best of my ability, it was very eye-opening. And the cool thing about writing inventory is that I have a deeper experience with it every single time. And I get a better understanding and I'm able to look at it a lot more objectively so like now when like my my identity is no longer attached to my character defects which took me some time to get to because I remember the first time my sponsor said I had you know I was through the steps I was sponsoring and I copped a resentment and I was doing my version of a 10th step (laughs) which was praying about it and calling my sponsor to try to get her to cosign And then her giving me like solid spiritual (laughs) guidance uh, to go write inventory. But I remember the first time she was like, I think you need to write another four step. And I was just, I was mad. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I just assumed, I took it personally. And I assumed that she was saying that my first four step was not thorough enough. Mm. And she's like, no, you've just developed new resentments. And so that's when I kind of started to learn or new fears or, you know, acting out, you know, my sex conduct or whatever. So that's when I started to learn that writing inventory can be a tool no matter how long you've been sober, Mm -hmm. like no matter what. And it has been one of the most useful tools in my sobriety. Cause like I said in the beginning, I cannot see this. I can intellectually know in my head, like, yes, that's selfish or, you know, that was dishonest, or when I'm in fear, I know I'm not trusting God when I'm in fear, but I, when I write out that inventory, it's, it's, I don't know, it's a really, really good spiritual tool for me and a lot of other people, and so 
the last part about the inventory that I love and I think doesn't really get talked about a whole lot <laughs> is, or at least in meetings and stuff like that, is the sane and sound ideal. Mm-hmm. And I love it so much. It was incredibly, incredibly powerful and useful for me in, you know, my relationship with my husband when we were first dating and, you know, we were like nine months sober, had no idea how to be in a relationship. And thankfully I had this tool of a sane and sound ideal right and incredible um sponsor direction as well and a god that was big enough to turn me into someone that was healthy and um willing to learn how to be in a relationship with someone right and so it says in this way we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life we subjected it to each relation we subjected each relation to this test was it selfish or not We asked God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. And that's really, really powerful, especially for someone like me who came in very shame-driven. A lot of that shame had to do with the fact that I was so promiscuous before. You know, a lot of that shame came from just the the reputation that I knew I had gotten you know especially because like growing up my brother my brother and I had one of my brothers had this huge falling out because I was sleeping with all of his friends (laughs) you know and it's just like I grew up in a small town and you know by the time by the time I was like 14 15 I already had this really bad reputation And word travels fast in a small town. And I carried that shame and kind of like ran with it into adulthood and into active alcoholism and just chaos. And so, I mean, this entire book was divinely inspired, but I love it when I, when I read through it and just exactly what I need to see sticks out to me and exactly when I need to see mm-hmm. it, you know. And so telling me that my sex powers are God-given, one, they're not evil they're not shameful they're not bad they're not dirty I'm not broken right um that God gave me this to be used as he sees fit right to not be used as a weapon to not be used as um even like anything to self-inflict harm or anything like that right um not to be used lightly or selfishly nor to be despised and loathed right like I should be proud um of the woman that God's made me and I am today and it was hard to see that in early sobriety because I had all of that shame and stuff but anyway so I write out this ideal and it says whatever our ideal turns out to be we must be willing to grow toward it Uh, we must be willing to make amends where we have done harm provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing in other words we treat sex as we would any other problem in meditation we ask God what we should do about each specific matter the right answer will come if we want it if we want it if we want it right and that was like a whole situation too because you know again early sobriety as i'm riding this first four step i had already fallen back into that selfish sex conduct um in a much more muted way so i had fallen into like texting like three different guys and i told myself um you know they're in the program so it's fine And then I remember my very first sponsor, and I'm saying, I don't know, I think I'm saying this because somebody might need to hear it, but just because they're sober doesn't mean they're safe. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And so I was trying to set boundaries with these people, but uh, again, like from that shame came these feelings of obligation. And so I didn't feel comfortable setting boundaries with anybody um, saying like, hey, you know what, I'm going to focus on my recovery right now, so please don't text me anymore. I didn't know how to do that. And so it all kind of came to a head when I was doing my sex inventory and my sponsor asked me, uh, because we had had a conversation earlier on and she kind of asked me to make a commitment not to be in a relationship until I was through the steps. And I was like, okay, cool. And then, you know, several weeks go by and I'm entertaining these three guys. And in my head, I'm like, I'm not dating them. Right. I'm not dating them. It's fine. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) finally I get honest about it. And she's like, if you're leading them on, that's dishonest and you need to stop. 
And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I learned how to set boundaries. And then I write this, this sane and sound ideal, which was a really cool tool for me to figure out um, what kind of woman God wants me to be and to kind of set a standard for myself because I'd never set a standard. I was pretty much like, oh, you looked at me, let's move in together. Right. You breathed in my direction, do you want to marry me? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> God, that makes me sound really desperate. I know, right? <laughs> Not that woman anymore. <laughs> um, and it was really, really helpful when I met my husband. And, you know, I invited my sponsor into that and got into that from the very beginning. And then, um, you know, she asked me, well, like, does he fit your sane and sound? And I was like, yeah, he does. And she's like, well, do you fit your sane and sound? And I was like, well, I'm working on it. <laughs> you know, and I was. And and it's cool because this sane and sound tool can be used for I mean I've rewritten it I've written different ones like I've written a sane and sound now that we're married a couple years ago um, I wrote a new one for like sane and sound ideal for being a wife you know because it's a little different than just a girlfriend Um, I've also written one for a sane and sound employee you know how does how do I think God wants me to show up at work and stuff like that sane and sound sponsor that was a really helpful one too I like that yeah and so I just, I love step four and it wasn't always like that, but it has been a really, really useful tool, especially when I'm, when I'm blocked from God, when I can't rationalize it or figure it out myself, or when I can't hear what my sponsor is trying to tell me. Mm-hmm. So I think that's all I have. That was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I just rewrote my scene and sound mm-hmm. after the last guy and I split up um because I I usually do that I'll like look back and I'll rewrite sex inventory after I'm done dating a guy and revisit the sane and sound Mm -hmm. can I share it with you yes so excited okay let's do it all right Uh, okay I'm excited I know right um so I keep it on my phone and I was like, I love this to keep it like super simple because that way, like, I'm not like one, like writing out like a unicorn, like build a boyfriend <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and then it's like easier to remember. Yeah. And so I have integrity, supportive, self-accountability, self-growth, um, someone who can fight fair and utilize the, their tools. Um, a Christian and seeking a relationship with God and consider it. I love it. I love it too. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So far. There you go. It's good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Living up to that ideal. Living up to the ideal. Yeah. And again, I mean, I, I think it's really, really good because, you know, the book also tells us us alcoholics are undisciplined. And so, you know, sometimes I just need the discipline of like writing out that ideal to remind myself that like this is who God wants me to be, mm-hmm. you know, or the discipline of writing out the inventory to see it clearly yeah, and things like that. So awesome. It's good stuff. Very good stuff. This is fantastic. Thanks. If y'all have loved what you heard, um, please share with a friend, upload it to your Instagram stories, tag the Magdalene house. Let us know what your takeaways were. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, your review matters. It helps get us out there um, so other people can hear, experience, strength, and hope. And I'm just going to read one that we recently received. Ooh, yay. Right? Um, I think I'm going to start doing this. I love it. Yeah. So good thing we can like edit things out so that way it just seems like it went so natural. Okay. Which one do I want to read? Not that one because my boyfriend did that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, this one. I love this one. This is from Josh Jordan. Ooh. Yes. Okay. I love this podcast and the organization behind it. Countless women's lives have been completely transformed as a result of what this team does. And this podcast is a small but powerful glimpse of what's available through recovery. I'm lifted up by these stories and even more by the demonstration these ladies serve to our community. Thank you, Josh, for that glowing mm-hmm. review. Um, and if you would like to hear your review, it means you have to leave one. 
I think that's all I have. You have anything else? No, just um, if anybody is sitting on a four step or sitting on inventory to write, this is your sign. This Do is it. your sign. There's so much freedom on the other side. Yes, absolutely. It really is a beautiful life. All right. Y'all have a fantastic day. I'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.